I mean, I always end that when I start vibing with that part of the song. And I dug that you vibe with it too, Jeremy. So welcome, Jeremy. Happy Culture Cast Day. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. I think everyone knows who you are. Jeremy is a professor, adjunct professor at Stanford University. And I think taught in two schools, both the engineering school and the, the uh, professional at the D school. So welcome, welcome. Also the co-author of IdeaFlow, which I can see in the background. Prominently displayed a, here on my left. Yeah. You can see it. You've got a picture of the cover of your book. And we are here today to talk about creating cultures and specifically, how do you create cultures of possibility and creativity? And so that's why you're here. We're super excited to have you. I think I was mentioning to you before we went on that I've had a few people reach out who are completely nerding out over you. And we know that they want you on the call. Nerds unite, um, nerds unite. Thank you. I think we should. And by the way, I know some of you are already putting comments in the comments, so feel free to pop them in there. And if there's questions, like one of my colleagues had said to me, I was listening to a podcast to Jeremy. I really wanted to ask a question. And I realized I was just listening to a podcast. And so now is the time. If you have questions or comments, feel free to pop them in and we'll make sure to address them. So before we get into it, though, Jeremy, let's talk about you. Like how, what puts you on the pathway to, first of all, becoming a professor and then being an expert on creativity? Like tell, tell us about who you are and kind of what your pathway was. Well, I'm, I'm most in need. That's why that's the truth of it as that, you know, the, uh, I don't know if you remember those old commercials for the men's hair club where the bald guy has hair and he says, you know, I'm not only the president, I'm also a member. <laughs> I feel, it. I feel like, uh, for me, I'm not only a professor, I'm also a student. Um, and the reason this stuff resonates with me and the reason it's so authentic for me to share it is because I'm first and foremost, a student of innovation myself. And I come from a student's background. Uh, I was actually a student at the design school back in 2008 and it derailed my life. I mean, nothing short of derailed wow. my life. I had been in management consulting and investment management and finance. And, uh, it was when I, had a chance encounter with the D school at a startup in India of all places that my path oh. got, my, my, my path got shifted. My trajectory got shifted. And now, you know, 15 years later, I'm, I'm still, I'm still on the learning journey. Wait a minute. You were at the D school in India. What's, what was that all about? Well, I was actually working at a startup that had gotten launched out of the D school okay. called D light design. They make, um, solar lighting products for families in India and in sub-Saharan Africa that live off the electrical grid that are historically burning kerosene in their homes, which is, you know, terrible for indoor air quality, for safety, et cetera. And so this startup was focused on bringing lighting to folks who live off the grid and they had started as the D school. So I went there because it was, I was really passionate and still am about economic development. And I wanted to work at a venture backed startup. So I landed in India, not primarily looking to learn about uh, a new radical problem solving methodology, but learn about economic empowerment and, and economic development. And my world got you know, sidelined when I started seeing how these designers were approaching the problem of building a business. And they were putting the human being at the center of their approach. And they were spending time with people in the slums and in developing areas. And 
I was fascinated. And they just kept saying, you know, you should go to the D school and you get back to Stanford. It was a summer between my two years of business school. And so I, I went, I went back to the D school and it totally changed my life. I mean, for those out there who are likely still in graduate school and thinking that they're on a journey that, you know, that they were supposed to be doing something like, was it that comment that someone said, Hey, you ought to go to the D school. Was it, um, I guess what I'm hearing you say is watching these designers really reframe a business by putting humans at the center. I think it's beautiful. I mean, and that is that what inspired you? Yeah. You know, it, it's the sense that the, um, it's the sense that I wasn't totally fulfilled with the tools I had in my toolkit so far. So I was doing a lot of work in pivot tables and Excel spreadsheets and things like that. And I was good at it and I was, you know, competent, but I wasn't thriving. And I think kind of tuning into what makes you thrive and what makes you come up. I think actually pivot tables really do it for some people. And if you're one of those people, it's like more power to you. You do you. That's all good. For me, I was not satisfied with that level of analysis or that level of, you know, idea generation. I have to be married. Perhaps it was somewhat fortuitous. I was married to a fashion designer. Uh, still am. She, she, I'm still married to her. Um, but she was approaching the world from a radically different perspective. And so perhaps I was in a, in a period of trying to reconcile these two different parts of my identity and self, you know, the analytical, you know, spreadsheet junkie and then yeah. the husband of a, of a fashion designer who's approaching the world from a place of inspiration and creativity and passion. And I think I, I just, I ended up being kind of at the intersection of those two points, those two kind of frames of reference. And I happened to thankfully be primed for uh, inflection point in my career as well. So all those three things kind of came together for me. I'm really fortunate. Oh my goodness. So then you came back and you went into the D school and that was it. Oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm losing sound. I, sorry. I was oh, saying I, I lost you. I, I had my first epiphany and I actually, I took Seth Godin's uh, admonition to blog every day to heart. So I started blogging every day a couple of years ago. Okay. And in the middle of this practice, I, uh, I remembered my first epiphany. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So my epiphany was in my first class as a student at the D school, this is the fall of 2008. They gave us the challenge to reinvent ramen. And of course, I'm an expert, right? I was a college student. I ate a lot of ramen in my days at the University of Texas Same. at Austin. Okay. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I thought I knew all about how to reinvent ramen, but they said we needed to visit a ramen restaurant as a part of the assignment. No kidding. I didn't know there were ramen restaurants. Okay. This is, I'm a, I'm a Wait. middle. <laughs> yeah. In yeah, Northern you California, heard me. Yeah, you did not know there were ramen restaurants. Oh, remember, I came from Texas. Okay. okay? There's like Tex Mex and barbecue and fast food. That's okay. at the time, at least. I shouldn't say that now. Um, but, uh, or at least that was my world. Um, but so I went to a ramen restaurant and I'm looking around. And you know what was what struck me, Marissa? What? There's all this slurping. What's up with all this slurping? And I realized these people like the broth. I yeah. thought the ramen noodles were all about the noodles. Because for me on the go, you know, that cup of noodles, I would pour hot water in it. Yeah. I'd eat the noodles, I'd throw it away. I'd never even drink the broth. And Come I on. didn't realize until I was sitting in a ramen noodle shop, the broth was the main event. 
And so, and if you think about kind of a model of kind of a cognitive model of creativity, yeah. our imaginations are stimulated by unexpected input. And that was a profoundly unexpected input for me, this notion that the broth is what matters. And so reinventing or reimagining ramen became about, well, how do we make the broth more of the centerpiece? And to cut a long story short, one of the other key parts of the assignment was I was supposed to, I think, draw 50 drawings of possible solutions, something like that, Okay. which just seemed totally preposterous to me. But I was the, I was the, uh, the beneficiary of that uh, requirement to push yourself beyond your first idea, because somewhere in the 20s or 30s, the idea of telescoping chopsticks that were hollow, that you could suck broth through, Neat. came to my mind. Stop it. And I thought this would revolutionize the cup of noodle. If you just had these telescoping chopsticks on the top, you, you, you pull them out and then you can not only eat, but you can also suck the broth and make it like an on the go experience. Anyway, I'm not saying that's a good idea, but for me, the way I define now as a professor, you know, people yeah. come to me to try to find epiphanies. The way I define a, an epiphany is the moment you wonder at yourself, where did that come from? You know, nice. and I've become somewhat of a junkie, an epiphany junkie. I love that feeling of where did that come from? That's amazing. And part of my kind of life purpose now is to help other people arrive at those similar moments themselves. Oh, my gosh. I love that. And, you know, I first of all, thank you for sharing that epiphany story around ramen. And it, it's a great illustration. And I know I nerded out on you when your Harvard Business Review article came out. And I was just like, this is a, a living definition of what it means to have a diverse mindset and to be inclusive. And, you know, when I hear you talk about, hey, I thought the ramens were all about the noodles because of your experience, you know, in college with your cup of noodles. And for me, it was literally top ramen. I think you get 12 for a dollar, right? Yeah. And then oh, yeah. make it, it, you make it as quickly as, as, as possible. But I remember like trying to temper the water because then you would lose flavor in the broth, at least for me. So mm -hmm. I think anyway, when I'm hearing you tell that story, what I love is a couple of things. One is that you actually forced yourself to experience how other people were experiencing their own. So it wasn't just your experience and you walked in there and you're here at this restaurant, but then right. you actually paid attention to, wow, how are people experiencing their ramen? I'm sure you didn't ask it that way. And then to you, another revelation occurred, which was, wait a minute, you know, with the slurping, who knew that it was all about the broth, right? Well, credit, credit to the credits got to go to the designers of that learning experience, honestly, because if left to my own devices, I would have just reinvented it there in the, in the, in the classroom. Right. And that's actually how we approach many problems. Somebody comes to us with a problem. We go, Oh, I know the answer. And we move on. Yes. And I think and that's part of the meta epiphany is realizing the first answer is really the best answer. And part of what I want people to actually start to realize, or, or a mantra, it's not exact, but a mantra that I feel like would be a really helpful mantra is to start to think first solution, worst solution. Oh, that's a good one. First not because it is, is kind of objectively the worst, but because it's certainly not the best. And yet most people's tendency is to kind of, it's called the Einstelling bias. We all have this bias yeah. to fixate on the first seemingly plausible solution we think of and we move on because yeah. it, it, the truth is, and we have Ari Kruglowski, a Russian psychologist to think, thank for this. He found that the most distressing phenomena we experience as human beings is the unknown. 
And so he, so we seek what he dubbed cognitive closure. We just want to close wow. the, if there's unknown, we want to close it as quickly as possible. But if you think about it, cognitive closure is literally closed mindedness, right? It's literally closed mindedness. And that's what we all long for. We don't want to be open-minded. And so kind of reinforcing this mantra, if you will, a first idea, worst idea, first solution, worst solution. My hope is that that just helps give people permission to just, what if you go to the ramen shop and not have the answer? What yeah. if you listen to the slurping and not have the answer? What if you force yourself to write down more than three solutions to the chat? Like, and, and again, all credit to my learning experience designers there, the professors in that course. I wouldn't know any of this stuff. I mean, now I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants. This is stuff yeah. that creative problem solvers have known for a long time. I think if anything, the, the fresh perspective I bring to the conversation is I come from finance. I come from everything had to be coded into a spreadsheet in my yeah. life, right? I mean, that's like my financial worldview. And for me, the synthesis of the financial perspective and a fashion designer's wife has resulted in my going, oh, that's kind of like that. And what she's done here is useful there. And I'm just, I, I feel in a way I'm a little bit of a, of a translator between worlds. I think that's such a good way to put it. And actually, I want to just jump on that pretty quickly because you did mention that, you know, when you, you and your wife, you were married to her and you still are, she's a fashion designer and this whole convergence of business and design kind of came together. You know, I think people, regardless of what their profession is, feel like they're in, you know, they're slotted into a certain box, right? Where yeah. I'm a business person, I don't need to be creative. We're going to let the creative people be creative. And what you're saying is, look, you know, first of all, it is about having a growth mindset to be curious, you yeah. know, it, which will help expand possibilities on what potentially the answer could be. But then encouraging people, regardless who you are and where you are and where you sit, you know, in an organization or on your team, you know, it all matters. And that you yeah. have um, the ability, you just maybe haven't practiced it yet, right? To be creative. I love, right? I love that word, by the way, practice. Yeah. I, I think far too, you know, most people when they think this is my, you know, observation, having led capacity building efforts, you know, over the last 13 plus years in every context imaginable, many countries, many industries, many verticals. And one of the universal similarities is most people think, and most organizations think about innovation as a point on a calendar. Yeah. They think about it as a calendar event. It's the hackathon or the workshop or the sprint or, and I'm all about, by the way, sprinting is important sometimes and hackathoning is great, but we do ourselves and our organizations and our own, you know, beings a disservice when we think about innovation primarily as an event rather than as an ability or as a capability. And what part of what I'm trying to do, part of what we try to do with this book is say, no, no, it's a practice. Yeah. And just like you play piano. Nobody says, I took piano lessons when I was five, therefore I play the piano. Or I made a drawing once, therefore I'm an artist. No one thinks about capability, other capabilities that way. But when it comes to innovation, for whatever reason, they point to a calendar event. And what we, what we want to do is disrupt that kind of core mythology and say, no, innovation is a practice. You can engage that practice regularly. Just you use that word muscle. You can actually yeah. grow that muscle through deliberate practice. And here are some proven ways to do that. I love that. And I love that. Um, and again, I'm going to bring it back to 
diversity because everyone's like, well, what do you mean diversity drives innovation? It is about, you know, I want to get into your head about how you cultivate environments, how you create a culture if you're a leader, right? To yeah. ensure that people have the permission to bring all that they're thinking. You know, because when I think about my defini definition of diversity and an inclusive culture, I, I think it's about leaders inspiring confidence in their people that they can mm. bring their full selves, which includes all of their ideas, good or bad, right? Mm. And that once yeah. you allow that to happen, you know, you can consider all of the possibilities to aligning on the problem that you're trying to solve. And, you know, you miss out if you don't, right? So yeah. I don't know what your, what your reaction is to that well, and how you would define a culture gosh, of creativity. Can I, just, can I just bookmark three things? You can help me remember them. Yeah. One is problems. One is bad. One is uh, diversity. Okay, we can cover them. Actually, it's, it's now uh, Jeopardy. Which one would you like to talk about first? I mean, let's, talk, I, let's go in the order that you brought them up. Problems. Okay. 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 So, so the first thing for leaders, you know, you, you hear that old adage, don't mean, bring me problems, bring me solutions mm -hmm. said no innovative leader ever. <laughs> okay. So that's not how innovative leaders lead. Innovative leaders know that innovation starts with a really wonderful problem and they encourage people to be problem finders. And, you know, we've got the suggestion box. Yeah. What I advocate, actually, what we mentioned in that, in that article as well is where's your problem box, right? Right. Problems are an essential precondition to solutions. It almost goes without saying. But a leader who doesn't want to hear problems certainly doesn't want innovative solutions, whatever they might say about it. And so cultivating a problem orientation, a problem awareness is really important. You know, um, one of the legendary professors at Stanford is a guy named Bob McKim. And he's a progenitor of the design program, yeah. which I, of which I'm now a part. And he said, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, he was... Um, assigning students to keep what he called a bug list, which was long before computer uh, programming entered common parlance. He's not talking about, you know, computer code. Yeah. He's talking about keep a list of things that bug you because he knew that the student who's paying attention to the things that annoy them are the students who are going to be generating novel solutions. Oh my gosh. So first thing is in design thinking, a lot of times gets kind of described as this kind of problem solving methodology, which it is, but it's first and foremost, a problem finding methodology. It's not the only one. And there's other ways to find problems, but I would say if, getting back to your question about leading teams, if you want to be encouraging innovation in your teams, you've got to be instilling a, a value placed on problems I love and the that. people who can find them and define them and describe them. So that's well, the first thing. I think that's kind of, that goes back to math for me. I mean, I was raised to become a doctor <laughs> per my parents and of course ended up not becoming a medical doctor, but love math and science stereotypically nonetheless. And, you know, one thing about math that I've always carried with me and now I'm thinking about a different way is you talk about be good at, problem finding is in working with and leading teams. It is mm. about getting aligned on the problem. And if I think about math, it is about gathering all the facts to define the problem, yeah. right? In order to then get let loose, right? And, and get people to then find the solution, you know? And I don't know who it is who said it. It's like, don't fall in love with the solution, fall in love with the problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a well, I mean, now Uri Levine, the co-founder yes. of Waze has written okay. a book called don't fall in love with the problem, fall in love, uh, don't fall in love with the solution, fall in love with the problem. Yeah. 
But that's so so that's kind of problem. The second the second if I'm I'm just trying to trace my own train tracks here. Yeah, bad. The second thing I mentioned was bad. Yeah. You know, you you had said how does a leader create a condition where someone can bring good and bad ideas? Yes. I don't I don't know about you. I don't know of any organizations that have uh, where where people feel like they can't bring their good ideas. If if let me know if there's an organization that you know of where somebody says you know what. I've got so many great ideas, but nobody wants to hear them. No, every organization values good ideas. They may now they may flub the execution or whatever, right? The the challenge is bad ideas. And to me, from a research perspective, what's interesting is bad ideas are critical because yes. what what we learn. And you take an example like uh, Steve Jobs, right? When we think of Steve Jobs, we don't think that guy is an idiot. You might disagree with his management style or his personality, whatever, but he is prescient, innovator. He's a disruptor. He redefined categories, delighted, you know, millions of customers. And how did he get there? Right. Uh, Sir Johnny Ive said in his eulogy at, at Steve Jobs Memorial Service, he said every day Steve and I would have lunch. And every day Steve would say to me, hey, Johnny, you want to hear a dopey idea? And Johnny said most of the time they were pretty dopey. In fact, sometimes they were truly terrible. But every once in a while, they take the air out of the room and leave us breathless and nice. wonder, right? As only Sir Johnny Ive can say. <laughs> right? But the point is, Steve Jobs knew what few of us do, which is the quality of your ideas is a function of variation. You're actually yep. trying to allow your brain to vary from the norm and from the expected path. And if you know, if I mean, going back to your math kind of expertise, yeah. what do you know about a normal distribution? It's symmetrical. So if you want a high kind of right into the distribution yep. outcome, what do you need? You need a high yep. left into the distribution outcome, right? Dopey, you could say, is the price of delight. That's Bad right. ideas are the price of good ideas. And so a really good question for a leader to ask herself is to say, when's the last time someone shared a dopey idea with me? I love that. A dopey idea. They're essential. Steve. Yeah, they're essential. And I think I think that's what I mean around people bringing their full selves. I think there's this um, need to feel perfect, right? This whole, I'm at work and I need to be perfect with everything that I show up, you know, and, and how I show up. And I think that stifles people. When I think about the creating a culture of inclusion, yeah. you know, when people don't feel like, Hey, look, it's okay. You know, this learning culture, whatever you want to call it. Like, I think the end cannot equal one. Right. Like it's got to be multiple things. You know, look, if we'll stick with math one more time, there's got to be multiple variables in order for you to kind of then find a solution. Yeah, you know, that will work. No, I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. The other thing, obviously, there, I mean, or to, to state what is implicit right now is volume matters. And it's okay. actually, you know, one of the one of my kind of you could call my nerd crushes or my nerd hero is a gentleman named Dr. Dean Keith Simonton. And he conducted a longitudinal study of breakthroughs across different fields, not only in the arts, and, but also in the sciences and engineering, et cetera. And the upshot of a lot of his research is basically this, the, the variable that is most highly correlated with the quality of one's work is the quantity of one's work. Hmm. So if you wanna have a good idea, you actually need to have a lot of ideas. But very few of us are oriented towards quantity. We're all, as you said, we're all about quality. Yeah. And if as a leader, if you aren't creating spaces where 
an enormous quantity of possibilities can be created, good, average, and bad, or maybe especially bad, then you shouldn't be surprised by mediocrity or by more average outcomes. Because very few leaders are cultivating environments where volume and variation are the kind of key considerations. I love that. So as a leader, how would you um, advise or coach people to set up you know, their next meeting, right? Oh, we're going to brainstorm. So, you know, how, oh, we're going to have a brainstorming meeting. We're going to talk about all of these things. How would you advise leaders do that in a way where it's going to encourage people to bring it all, right? The volume well, of thinking. Well, so there's, I would even separate brainstorming from, you know, first kind of tools that leaders can use. Okay. Um, so we've got, there's one of the chapters in the books actually excerpted in Entrepreneur Magazine. It's a whole chapter on brainstorming, which, and it's freely available, right? So, you know, you can get it there. But I would say even before brainstorming, and there's tons of stuff to do there. It's not for lack of material that I'm, uh, you know, sidestepping slightly. But a simple thing that a leader can do is, you know, Astro Teller, who's the head of Google X, he's CEO of Google X. And I had him on my podcast recently. And one of the things that he told me about is uh, a phrase that I've given it. He hasn't given it this, but I call it give me five. Okay. And basically what a leader is saying when they say give me five is not give me a high five, but although that's why I like it, give me five, but bring five solutions. When we're trying to tackle a problem, don't just bring one idea. And what Astro told me is that many times a team comes with one solution. And he said, I always require five. And then people try to game the system, of course. And they go, okay, we're going to bring one that we really like and then four dummy ideas. But he said, sometimes even one of the dummy ideas is better than the idea that they started with, right? But it's the practice of pushing yourself, just going back to my first D school class, right? Sketching beyond the first idea that comes to my mind. If you can get a team in the habit of, implicitly a b testing their own solutions they're already light years ahead and so the simple thing i mean i I, part of the reason that i avoided the brainstorm topic is not because there aren't great ways to do it but because again it's an episodic event-based activity right and we can think about the brainstorm on the calendar you know maybe people gotta all of a sudden they gotta go pick their kid up at school or they're hoping they get sick right because nobody's looking forward to that um but (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. As somebody who's been involved with a lot of brainstorms, I can say nobody is going, man, I wish for another brainstorm today. Right. Right. But a simple thing a leader can do is just request or require volume. You know, anytime going back to legendary Bob McKim, anytime a student asked him for feedback, he would say the same thing. He'd say, you got to show me three. I can't give you feedback on one idea. Yeah. And, and I think whether it's show me three or give me five, but this idea of simple mechanisms to require volume and variation, uh, a simple, uh, here's a question that I love the leader could ask, what else are we trying? Very simple. And there's so much there, right? Trying implies a lowering of the bar. It's not what else is perfect. What else are we trying? It also implies a certain amount of skepticism over the one thing, right? What else, right? Are we trying? Meaning we should try this, but are we trying other stuff? And then what else is, is about alternatives and options? And if a leader could just bring this kind of question into her repertoire, or his repertoire, I think that that would create permission. All of a sudden, if I know the goal is to create three or four possible solutions, I'm actually like, I have to vary my thinking. 
And all of a sudden I have now, how do we know which one's best? Well, we should experiment, right? We should commission yes. parallel experiments and actually learn which is best, right? So that to me, that's kind of the idea with bad. I want to get to the third thing because it's actually what you started with, which is yeah. diversity. And it's critical. I can't say enough about the importance of diversity. And here's why. Fundamentally, you know, somebody asked me about futures thinking. I was on a call with a student who yeah. was seeking advice. And this is this ties to diversity. Don't don't okay. don't be concerned. They ask, "Am I an expert in futures?" I said, "I'm familiar with futures, but I said if I abstract a level, I believe in collisions." You know, Arthur Kessler wrote a yeah. seminal book on creativity, the act of creation, and the way he defined creativity. It's my second favorite definition ever, by the way. He said, creativity is the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. And, the, and collisions are where the interesting stuff happens. And futures, as far as I, you know, my kind of layman's understanding or my limited understanding is, it's a structured process for facilitating collisions between frames of mm. reference. That's it. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a believer in futures insofar as I'm a believer in collisions, okay? But the, but the, the meta point being, Collisions are important. And if you think about an idea, what's an idea? It's just a collision. It's a collision, a, a connection, yeah. you could say, between two things. There's the, and, and that's actually super valuable for people to know. An idea is not new. It's a new synthesis of two other things. If we think about an idea as something that's like ex nihilo, so to speak, <laughs> we're in trouble, right? Because none of right. us are capable of ex nihilo creation. Literally none of us. What we do cognitively, if you look at you know, fMRI scans, what we're doing when we're coming up with an idea is two things we already know have come in contact in an unexpected way. Yeah. And so again, so again collisions, I'm, I'm getting to diversity, I promise. I hear you. If, if the question is, how do we facilitate collisions? And if an idea is a connection between two things I or we collectively know, then you think about my head is only capable of so many collisions or connections, right? I'm bringing, you know, you could think about an idea as kind of a combination of Lego pieces. We put them together. Yeah. You know, I tell you a stroller, you know, in San Francisco, there's hills. And then I tell you self-propelled lawnmower helped me when I was a kid, you know, mowing lawns. Immediately, what do you do? Like, I don't have to tell you the idea, right? You go, oh, yeah. That's two Legos. Yeah. We put them together, right? That's how, that's how ideas work. Well, if I bring a bag of Legos to this conversation and you bring a bag of Legos to this conversation, the number of novel connections, one, I mean, goes up just because we're two brains, not one. But to the extent that our backgrounds are... Sorry, I got I'm choked up when I talk about I that. know. I'm going to cry. <laughs> to the extent that our backgrounds are diverse and our perspectives are different, the number of potential combinations goes up exponentially. Right. I'm excited about you taking that point. And to me, I think, again, it, it's still a challenge today, I think, for leaders when they think about how do we remain committed to diversity in the face of uh, the year of efficiency in a lot of our organizations, a lot of companies you know, I think about the proverbial diversity function, which many yeah. have, you know, called out of their organization because now they're trying to make margins as well as focus on GNA. But I think that definition of um, how many connection points can you make? And I love just the visualization of your bag of Legos, you bring yours, I bring mine. And how do you do that? 
and make all of those connection points, right. then eventually right. it'll become something. And I think yeah, that's I mean, how- are you, creating, are you creating a space where you can try on connections and try yes. on possibilities? And is there, is there a, you know, one of, the, one of the tenets of improvisation, we borrow a lot from improv theater in the D school. One of the things that, one, one of the great tricks that we've leveraged from improv, there's the, obviously the yes and, right? Yeah. Which is great. One of the things that's amazing is assume your partner's a genius. Assume the, the, the contribution they're making yeah. is the very best contribution that could possibly be made. Your job is to figure out why they're a genius, but that they're a genius, unquestioned. I think if we, and, and it's similar, it's not unlike um, assuming good intent, right? Yeah. Even in interpersonal dynamic. But if we assumed genius collaborators in our organizations, especially among people who don't look like us or think like us, totally. I believe magic would happen. Part of the reason diversity has failed to achieve its potential is because we don't assume the person I'm working with is a genius in some other way. And it's my job to unlock and build upon that genius. Oh my goodness. I love that. And I think it is about having positive intent. And I'm still going to use that word intent. It's about being intentional about people and what the possibility is and what thinking they could bring to the table. Yeah. Especially yeah. if they're different from you. It's hard, you know, and to me, it's actually used that phrase um, year of efficiency, which I hate because um, I get it as a finance guy. I get it. But innovation has never been efficient. Yeah. And to me, what I hope, you know, if 2023 is the year of efficiency, I hope 2024 is the year of effectiveness. Yeah. And to me, what makes for effective collaboration and effective innovation feels inefficient. You know why nobody assumes the, the person across the table from them is a genius? Because it makes their work harder. It's so much easier <laughs> to be critical. Human beings are lazy. Criticism comes naturally to us. Judgment comes naturally to us. And so... To, to, to introduce what, you know, Abraham Luchens referred to as an interrupt, to, to, to assume good intent, to assume genius collaborator requires that I deviate from the easiest path, from the path, path of least cognitive resistance. It requires more work and that's not efficient, but it is effective. Right. And as long as we're kind of operating or masquerading under the banner of efficiency, I'm not surprised that important initiatives get suffocated. I hear you. Yeah, I think, um, and actually this will I'll work in the question and I think Nicole is on here. She's the one, she and I had a conversation before we jumped on and I'll, I'll stick to this year of efficiency, which I, I'm aligned with you. I don't know that I believe it in that, okay, I think everyone is looking at GNA and trying to hit a margin number, totally get that. I was watching CNBC. It's kind of like my ear candy. I kind of have it on the background in the mornings. It's and this is Chris, a safe place to make confessions like yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I and the CEO of McDonald's. So Chris Kempinski was on, and the reporter like threw in this last question around. Well, you know, I know it's the year of, of efficiency, and um, you all just went through a round of layoffs. So she brings that up. And then talks about, you know, so what's going on? How are you feeling about that? And then, you know, Chris, to his credit, said, hey, this wasn't about a GNA play, right? I'm using my words, not his. Mm -hmm. He said, I think it's an opportunity now for us to 
think about, first of all, put our business at the center, our people at the center. So you said something like that in terms of, you know, the product, the people are at the center of innovation. But then secondly, and how we might approach our business differently. Right. And so he said that. Mm. And yet, OK, they, they uh, have reshuffled the deck, so to speak. But now it's a chance to think about executing the business differently. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting thing to say we've reduced people. So I want to get your thought on, all right, when you have less people, um, unless you create an environment where we're like, hey, let's just toss out old ways of doing things and figure out how to do new things, because now it's a new combination of different people. Um, is that efficiency and innovation at the same time? You know, I I think... I don't know is the, is the short okay. answer. And I hesitate to say that, but given that I just wrote a blog post yesterday entitled say, I don't know when you don't know, okay. uh, I feel it would be disingenuous to say something else. The, the truth is um, it depends on who's left. It depends on the perspective they have left. If all the old guard is left, you're doesn't matter how much you reduce. You're not going to reimagine something. Right? I love that. Right. You, you know, and so to me, that's, um, I don't, I, I, I don't know all the details there to make a final judgment, yeah. but the question of who's doing the thinking is still paramount and who's doing the collaborating is still paramount. And I'm not, I'm not advocating necessarily more or less yeah. so much as I'm advocating, recognizing that the decisions we make and the solutions we generate are a function of who's thinking and who's collaborating and who you have in the room matters. I love that. And I think um, it is about who's left and who you have in the room matters. And I was talking with Nicole about this too. She's like, well, what about if you're in your flow, right? And so, you know, in this time where people are, there's less resources, less people in the room, and yet they get super excited about looking for a solution. And, mm -hmm. you know, how do you manage burnout? And I know that um, one of my dear friends, and I've heard you say this before, I've been in one of your seminars, right? where it's kind of like when you get to this point of exhaustion that maybe it's time to step away, yeah. right? Because then, I mean, that's almost the opposite effect of trying yeah. to find new ideas. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, what would well, you say to Nicole? Well, I think, um, I think that a lot of times the hard work of trying to solve a problem is the necessary precondition to summon all of the energies and powers of your subconscious and then if you if you've sufficiently summoned your subconscious, the most responsible thing you can do is walk away. You know, and the most responsible thing you can do is uh, recognize that there needs to be some background processing. And so I think it, it's it's not that the work is uh, unimportant, but it's that the work, the conscious focused attention isn't everything. And there's loads of examples, you know, of breakthrough thinkers throughout history who recognize the way that I can advance right now is by working different, as I would say. So you look at Albert Einstein, classic example. Whenever he was stuck on a physics problem, he'd pick up his violin. And if anybody happens on his cottage seeing him play the violin, I think for us as kind of efficiency-oriented, yeah. you know, focused, productive people, we'd go, this guy's wasting time, right? Frank Lloyd Wright would take multiple naps per day. You know, Joyce Carol Oates, 
always walks up the hill behind her house whenever she's stuck on a plot line, right? And on and on and on. There's yeah. all sorts of historical examples. And to me, I think actually we need permission and language yeah. to create space to work different. And, and I, I do think there is a certain degree of obsession that's, inquire, that's required actually to give one permission. But to be obsessed and to, to, be, to, be, to care deeply doesn't mean that you've always got to be at, uh, responding to Slack messages and answering emails. Yeah. And some of the most productive thinking you can do may be on a walk or on a hike or, you know, or some other way of tapping into your subconscious. It's incredibly powerful. Um, but right now there's not permission for much of that. You know, we have very, very narrow definitions for what looks like productive work. And yet, if you look at the history of invention, there's a reason they say the history of innovation is the bed, the bus, and the bathtub. Say more about that. The bed, the bus, and the bathtub. There are all these in-between places, yeah. all the places where we're not really working. And that's where the innovation tends to happen. And mind you, if somebody spent all day in the bath, I don't think they'd get more ideas. They spent all day on the bus. But the point is the bath is a valuable, is a valuable part of your day, you know? And I mean, I, no kidding. I was speaking with a young professional recently who actually asked me, she said, should I give up sleeping for a while? Cause I just have too much to do. And I thought, what a shame that the narrative she's been hearing yeah. is so that, that, that the thing that's got to go is her sleep. Um, to the point of to the point of neglecting self care, and so to me, it's I think that we have kind of we, we there, the pendulum has swung so far to the extreme of um, of efficiency and productivity that we're starting to neglect really important aspects of what makes human ingenuity shine and thrive. Yes, well, I think you hit a key point. Um, it's unfortunate that that student says, "Should I give up sleep?" You know, I'm reacting to when you said. Um, the in-between, right, is when the ideas come up. I think I see a couple of former colleagues here where I, they would drive, they would be driven crazy by me because I'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I had this routine of working out every morning and getting ready before I went into the office or went on to Zoom. And it was those in-betweens where I'm like, hey, that issue that you brought to me or that problem where you asked for my opinion, here's one, two, three, four, five. Don't know if any of them are awesome, but here's what yeah. I think about it. And they're just yeah. like, oh man, you were probably getting ready for the day. Like, it's like, it was during that in-between time when it's yeah. really about um, focusing on you. You know, I want to yeah. get into that because you said this, it's around having grace for others and giving permission and having space to take that time. But then uh, the importance of self-care, right? And taking care of yourself. Yeah. So that you can be a productive, productive, innovate, innovative being. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, it starts with a calendar. You know, if you ask most people why they aren't able to be creative or why they aren't solving problems in novel ways, they'll point to their calendar. You know, famously, this is an example that I've cited in a lot of different places now, but it's a perfect example. I was doing a capability building endeavor with a large tech company and a woman who runs the IT department, who's a phenomenal executive and professional, consummate professional. We gave the assignments to this cohort of leaders. In the next two weeks, you've got to run one experiment. 
And by the way, in our language, experiments is cheap, scrappy, fast, yeah. not like Herculean, not, you know, expensive, not long time, call it two hours, you know, and over the course of the next couple of weeks, you'll have an experiment done. And she came to the, you know, to the zoom meeting two weeks later and said, and we said, Hey, Ann, tell us about your experiment. She said, when am I supposed to run an experiment? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's Wednesday morning. And if I look at my calendar really quickly and she kind of tallied up, this is meeting number 32 on my calendar. And she said, I don't know when I'm supposed to experiment. And I realized that moment, I I just, and I'm thankful that I, you know, I have the position that I do to say, Ann, look at your calendar next week. How does it look? She said, it's crazy. I said, look at your calendar the next week. How does it look? So it's, it's pretty crazy too. You, I'm, I'm booked out for a couple solid weeks. I said, okay, look at your calendar the next week. I said, okay, there's a few, there's a few spots of daylight there. I said, okay, preemptively block it. Yeah. And she said, what? I said, I'm going to call this a love letter to your future self. Preemptively block it. She said, well, what should I call it? And I said, experiment. And she said, well, but what am I going to do? I said, you don't know yet. But if you don't have the time, then when it gets the time, when it, when the time comes to run the experiment, you'll say you don't have time. So to me, there's there's something you know. Atul Gawande mentioned this in a recent interview. He wrote on being mortal, and he mentioned how he ha- he schedules what he calls unscheduled time. Yep. He actually blocks it on his calendar. And to me, there's something about like whereas the calendar, a lot of times we're victims of our calendars. The, the amazing insight that I've arrived at is for most, it's not true. Every, everyone is not in control of their calendar. I, and I don't want to pretend that's true. Yeah. I would say the vast majority of us are in far more control than we like to believe if we look far enough out. And if we start looking farther out and we start creating regular pockets for ideation and experimentation and seeking perspectives beyond the insular you know, circles in which we run, we'd find we actually can create that space. And we can begin, instead of being the victim of our calendar, we can start to wield our calendar as a weapon or as a tool that could unleash our creativity. I love that piece of advice. Actually, if you're looking ahead and scheduling ahead in the future, if you can't find it today. And I also love the idea, too, of you know, knowing when you've got the energy. And what I mean by that is, mm. again, everyone has different cadences depending on what it is they do. Um, and in an old life for me, it's like, oh my gosh, Mondays were go, 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 because it was like the executive team would meet, we would be in meetings all day. And so I would have to find spots during the week where I'm like, all right, where is, I, I called it just kind of the free time where um, I'm free to either walk around and see what's going on, walk around by calling people if I was on Zoom, right, um, right. just think about anything and having that free space. But giving that free space at a time where I had energy, not Friday afternoon at three o'clock. No, no, you're you're just gonna zone out. Exactly. Well, you know, even in the early days of Amazon, Jeff Bezos would block two days a week where he wouldn't schedule meetings. And you go, well, that's startup mode. No, at the time, Amazon was valued at 17x Barnes and Noble. Okay. And he said, it's important. If I'm not surfing the web, if I'm not managing by walking around as Peter Drucker, whoever says, it's you know, I'm not going to be having new ideas. And so it's, I spoke with an executive actually at the conference that where you and I met and he told me he calls it strategy sessions and he blocks the time because in his organization, the calendars are somewhat transparent, but 
strategy session is sufficiently ambiguous that nobody questions it. Yeah. He said, I may be walking my dog for 90 minutes, but he said, I know I'm doing deep strategic thinking. And if I don't preemptively block that time, it gets gobbled up with all very, yeah. you know, important, urgent things. Yeah, I think about that. And I think that was kind of the gift of everyone working differently, right? Working from home. In my case, I was just down the street from my office. So I was going into the office a lot as well. But you've got to find those pockets of time to kind of uh, do some self-care, preserve the energy so that you can you know, spend it uh, on what the possibilities are. And I love yeah. that idea to walk the dog for 90 minutes because like the curiosity of the dog, I mean, I love it. I have a dog. Right. I think we talked about this. I'm not sure, but we have a, um, a Siberian Husky who has a lot of energy and she is just so curious. And I think I learn a lot walking the dog because she mm. sniffs around for everything. And, you know, she's kind of goofy and has a curiosity about things. I'm like, Yes, I'm not feeling that today, but I'm going to feel it because of my dog. You yeah, know? that's great. That's great. Yeah, I mean, kids are another great uh, source of permission, right? They're the wonder. They're, you know, it's we 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 don't have space to wonder much. You know, that's and that may be one kind of I I don't want to say final exhortation, yeah. but if I think about if I if I think back to the question of leaders, especially leaders are often positioned as the answer people. So when I'm stuck, I go to you and you have the answer. Well, that's a broken definition as far as I'm concerned. I agree. I believe a leader should be the champion of an approach, not the answer keeper. They should be the approach keeper. And so having a set of instincts around when we're stuck, how can we look up? How can we get out of our own heads? How can we get out of our own way? What can we try? Who can we ask? There, there are a series of kind of self-interrogation questions and team interrogation questions that a leader can employ to get to, to set to pull herself off the hook. To, I, I can't tell you the number yeah. of CEOs and leaders that I talk to who go, yeah, my team, they're asking me questions I don't have the answers to. And I say, so what? Yeah. And they say, well, I have to. I go, well, who says you have to have the, how can you possibly be a subject matter expert in everything? The question is, do you have a, 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 um, a reliable approach to ambiguity that will help you uncover the answers? And you, then you've got to empower your team to, to, to engage that approach. Yeah. I also think too, there's a, there's a beauty in not having all the answers. And, and what I yeah. love about that is, so for example, I would have, my team come to me and say, hey, here's the problem, right? And here's the thing we want to do. We all brainstormed, et cetera. When I say we all, within that function, right? So I'm going to make it up. So I think he might be on this call. He um, was the leader of compensation and benefits. And here's this new thing we want to do to implement this. And I would say, great. Who else have you talked to? You know, so meaning mm. outside of benefits yeah. and compensation, outside of the people function, who else have you talked to? And he's like, yeah. what do you mean? And what I mean by that is like when you go out there and maybe the answer comes back differently, it also creates this collaboration, this buy-in that people feel like they're also, you know, creating the change with you. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. um, I love that. I, I love your definition of leadership, which is having a good approach yeah. and giving that to your people. I love that. 
Yeah, the, the, and I may also mention something about rhythms, right? I mean, I think in in the I don't think I know in the book we tell the story of Ben Franklin, who's kind of you know an American hero of sorts. If you think about the breadth of innovation, right, from bifocals to the Continental Congress to uh, you know <laughs> fire departments to libraries to the lightning rod, right? Um, how did he do it? How did he have such a breadth of innovation? So, by the way, poor Richard's almanac and all of his, he's like the foremost author in a colonial America. Well, it turns out every week for 30 years, he met with a Junto. He called it his Junto, his leather aprons club. I actually have a leather apron here because of my, because of my Junto. And we all have leather aprons, right? None of us are artisans in the same way, but we're inspired by Ben Franklin. And the point is, he had rhythms and rituals for, and they would gather together and ask questions like, has anyone moved here who we ought to know? Has anyone's business fallen into disrepute? And for what reason? Are there any advances in the sciences that we ought to explore? They had these questions that they would review. And is it any wonder that he was responsible for stewarding so many innovations? No, okay. he had... He had mechanisms in his life to be learning new things. And I think that as leaders, we can be insulated from new information and from new sources of inspiration. And it's, we have to take it upon ourselves to be interfacing, like doing things like this, right? Yeah. This, is a, this is a service to many leaders to be getting information beyond their kind of echo chamber. That's right. Well, I know we're going to be coming to the top of the hour and I have two questions for you. The first one is, I know you've, you've dropped a lot of nuggets that I know people have commented on throughout this conversation, but if there's one thing, I always think about innovation and really how it happens through small executable steps. So like it was one small executable step that anyone who was part of this conversation can take to make their way towards innovation. What, what advice would you give them? Um, I'd say very simply, flex your idea muscle every single day. Okay. And start today. Here, here's something everybody can do right now, literally right now. Write down a problem that you don't know the answer to. Could be how do I respond to this email? Could be how do I give this feedback? What should I, how should I close this presentation? Anything any problem that you don't have an answer to. And then set a timer for five minutes and generate 10 ways to solve the problem. In five minutes. In five minutes. And I can't. I've actually built, I can share with you a link. I built a, a, a very simple kind of chatbot software to facilitate that kind of conversation, but you don't need any software to do it. All you need to do is push yourself. We call it an idea quota in the book, right? It's pushing yourself yeah. to, to hit a number rather than a quality threshold. So I'm not saying good, not 10 good ideas, 10 potential ways of solving it, crazy ways of solving it, easy ways of solving it, hard ways of solving it, expensive, cheap, whatever, right? But yeah. if you do that every single day, just take one problem. By the way, you're going to spend cycles kind of spinning your wheels anyway on stuff that you're stuck on. Just set a five-minute timer, come up with 10 ideas, 10 possible solutions. That's the easiest way to get started flexing the muscle. I love that. And then I want to jump into pop culture. So mm. what are you listening to? 
watching or wearing these days? Well, uh, I am, I am a big, uh, Warriors fan. I don't know how you feel about the Warriors, but I am sitting on the edge of my seat to see whether they can, uh, whether they can three peat or, you know, five peat or whatever it is, yeah. um, with the, with the or new orientation. Right. So in the, uh, in the, it is whenever it's NBA playoffs, my life gets, gets awfully focused on checking the scoreboards, things like that. I mean, right on. I love that. That's so awesome. All right. So everyone knows who you are. We know your book. Where can we find more of your goodness? Where can people go? Yeah, LinkedIn. Um, yeah, there's my handle there. Just, you know, slash yeah. Jeremy Utley. Twitter, I'm at Jeremy Utley. Um, I'm, as I mentioned, I, I blog every day at jeremyutley.design. Uh, we never even got into the topic of free spend. So maybe we could talk about that at some point in the future. But there's I mean, all sorts I, of fun things that, I, that I'm doing in the world. And I, and I love learning from people. So my love language is origin stories. So if you have origin stories, folks out there of, you know, cool stuff that's happened in the world and how it's happened, the greatest thanks anyone can ever give me is tell me a cool story. I love that. Well, everyone knows how to get a hold of you, Jeremy. Please tell him a cool story. And at some point, we might need to spend some more time just talking about free spend, dude. Yeah, like, we it's, 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 worthy of a, it's worthy of a whole other conversation for sure. Oh, my goodness. Well, I want to thank everyone. First of all, thank you, Jeremy. This has been amazing. And I am such a fan and now a more full-on nerd around innovation, volume, but also how it relates to inclusion and diversity. I, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd about that too. And I just wish leaders can actually see it for what it is, which is like, how do you drive innovation and growth for your teams, for yourself, you know, for the companies that you lead. And so thank you for bringing that out. Um, and thank you everyone for being part of this conversation. Go look for Jeremy's stuff at Jeremy Utley all over the place, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, I'm also going to look for that free chapter on your website. That looks like fun. And it's then there. Hopefully, it's there. Yeah. Hopefully all of you can join live at the next culture cast, which actually is this week. We kind of have a double header this week. Um, another friend, Oliver English, who is the co-CEO or co-founder and CEO of common creative table and a chef. As we talk about regeneration and sustainability for ourselves as human beings, but also um, in the farming community and with food. So looking forward to that conversation. That uh, sounds amazing. Yeah. Thanks everyone for joining us today. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks all. We'll see you later.